You're listening to the You're Such a Catch podcast with your host, Aaron, <laughs> whose journey in dating and relationships is on full display for your empowerment, education, and honestly, your entertainment too. Hello, and welcome to You're Such a Catch. Did you tune in last week to hear Aaron and Josh's coming out stories? If you haven't done that yet, I encourage you to do so. I had to mark the episode illicit because of Aaron's mouth. (laughs) He likes to drop the old see you next Tuesday and he does it often. But you know, last week I couldn't help but think of how important acceptance and empathy were to us as humans in our relationships and really to function as a healthy society. These two themes, acceptance and empathy, bled over into today's episode. I'm sure most of you tuned in to the Bachelor finale. I know I watched with my girlfriends, Courtney and Kachita. I know uh, Kachita's been on before to talk about the Bachelorette, Claire season with Dale. But we recruited her fiance, Ty, to join our girls' night. And if you haven't been following this season, it's been controversial <laughs> to say the least. You know, what's Chris Harrison's famous line? You know, the most dramatic season yet. So this one probably does take the cake, but I'm going to quickly summarize it for those of you who need some context because it's just going to tie it all together. So Matt James, who was The Bachelor, he's the first black bachelor. So his mom is actually white and his dad is black. And he actually did not come from within the Bachelor franchise like most bachelors and bachelorettes do. Typically, they're contestants on other seasons, and then they got, it became like America's, you know, sweetheart or favorite or whatnot, and then they're given the the role of the actual bachelor or bachelorette. So he was the roomie to Tyler C., who was a former contestant on Hannah's season of The Bachelorette. And now kind of that we have those little things established, I want to kind of dive into what happened this season. So Rachel Kirkconnell was one of the contestants this season, and spoiler alert, come on, you guys, like, if you have the internet, you've seen this, but Matt gives his final rose to her, and during this time, you know, uh, leading up into the final rose ceremony and throughout the season, there were some racially insensitive social media posts from Rachel that resurfaced. So, yes, obviously, that's where the controversy comes in, and to add just another layer of complexity (laughs) here. As these images were spreading viral online, Rachel Lindsay, so you got to keep the two Rachels separate. Rachel Lindsay was the former bachelorette and she was the first ever black bachelorette. She was interviewing Chris Harrison, who he's been the franchise host for, God, 20 plus years. But Chris seemingly was defending the other Rachel, Rachel Kirkconnell's actions. He was speaking over Rachel Lindsay and he didn't appear to be very empathetic, nor did he appear to be taking, you know, the situation, handling it with the severity that it should have been. So now that all happened in February, which is well before the finale aired. You know, the finale actually just aired last week. So maybe in hindsight, Chris was defending Rachel Kirkconnell because he knew Matt chose her. But that really remains unknown to us. And while it's unclear what will happen to Chris and his role, you know, with the franchise, he's been on leave and cancel culture has come hard at him. 
We know he won't be returning next season. That's already come out. Caitlin Bristow and Tasia Adams will step up and they will host. But today, what I want to talk about is how Matt, The Bachelor, responded to learning the news, specifically when he was making the decision to move forward in his relationship with Rachel or not. And I honestly think this is one of those scenarios where you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So he chose to cut things off with Rachel and allow her to do the work on her own. And the work really meaning to understand history and to realize why her behaviors and her actions were inappropriate. So again, the finale just aired. It was the Monday after daylight savings time. So we were already tired, but... When I watched the finale, my group of girlfriends, we watched it so intently, especially in the after the rose ceremony where Matt and Rachel, you know, saw each other for the first time. And we got to hear Emmanuel Echo, like ask Rachel these hard questions, but we kept pausing the show so we could have our own discussions around everything. So we, I mean, we discussed, you know, Rachel's actions. We discussed, you know, her social media posts. We tried to put ourselves in her shoes and Chris Harrison's shoes and Matt's shoes. We were deep in just these philosophical discussions about the whole thing. But for me, being in a relationship with a black man, the subject matter really hit close to home. And it made me look inward again and really make sure like I'm doing all I can to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Now that you have the Reader's Digest version, let's get to it. And three, two, one, and we're back. (laughs) Are we back, babe? We're back at it again, baby. Baby, we got so much good positive feedback about our, our episode. I know. This should be like people a, were crying. Really? Yeah. I mean, I kind of cried too. Did, did you have video of them crying? No. Then it didn't happen. It oh didn't happen. I think it happened. I don't think people falsify when they cry. Maybe you're right, but yeah. I wish I could cry more. You do? Yeah. Why? Because it's feel it's relieve it's very relieving to cry. Like it's like a release. Mm. The few times in my life that I've been able to cry as an adult, it's mm-hmm. been like very. I mean, it's ugly crying for sure. It's like <laughs> it's like you can't breathe, your eyes. But but I I tear up a little bit at movies. That's why I can't wait. The movie theaters are back open now. Are they for sure open? Yeah, I got an alert from AMC over in Century City. Oh, so date and night. Date is night on, is, is on, on the, the horizon. Is on the horizon. Oh my gosh, I'm excited. We'll have to wear uh, full body suits. <laughs> hazmat suits. <laughs> hazmat suits, exactly. Oh, you, I mean, I'm here You can finish it. my words, babe. You complete me. Oh, don't say that. You complete yourself, honey. Babe, I was just kidding. I know. <laughs> but I want to know more about this crying. So you think you've only cried a handful of times in your for adult sh- life? For sure, yeah. But positive, positive. Do you, like growing up, do you feel like... I cried a little bit more growing up. But I, got, I mean, do you I feel it. like there's a stigma against... It's not that it's a stigma as a man, as an alpha man. I don't know about beta men. Maybe they cry every week. I don't know. <laughs> but as an alpha man, you try to think more about finding a solution to a problem versus like dwelling in it, living in it, and letting it consume you. Mm. So one of the times that I cried as a grown man was when I was 20... I was 26, and my best friend Chris he had just died on the ship, and oh. I found his body. But oh in that gosh. in that moment, I wasn't crying because I had to, I was trying to save his life, and I was trying to get. We were anchored off the coast of Hong Kong, uh-huh. but then the following day or later that night, I was definitely. It was crazy. That was a day I I cried twice. 
uh-huh. because I called home and I found out that my youngest brother had just been incarcerated into juvenile detention for like 18 months. Mm. And I felt guilty because I wasn't there. Mm. I wasn't mm-hmm. in New York City to, to help him. And so I was crying and I was just in bed. I just couldn't believe that my youngest brother was going to be incarcerated. And then, so I was, basically my best friend Chris decided he would, they would, they would all take my watch. Mm-hmm. I had a, I had the 10 to 2, mm-hmm. which people in the military know that's the 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. Okay. four hour watch duty section. Mm-hmm. And Basically, I was distraught, so I was basically sleeping all day. I didn't eat anything all day or anything. Uh-huh. Because so, of the news about your brother. Because of the okay. news about my brother. So I was crying about that. And then later that night, I woke up around 8 o'clock, went to go get like eat something, and was watching TV, and it was kind of hanging out in the wardroom with the other officers on the ship. And Chris, who had stood watch in the morning was going to stand my watch in the evening, so that mm-hmm. 10 to 2. And so you need to be there 15 to 30 minutes ahead of time. So by 9.30, he's supposed to be on on station getting a turnover report. So around 9.30 came, and he wasn't up yet. And the wardroom called just to check, like, uh, excuse me, the duty station called, like, hey, is, is, is Chris getting up? I was like, oh, let me go get him. And then everybody was like, no, no, Jamal, just relax, man. You had a rough day. Just relax. We, we'll go do it. So... Somebody went down to check on him mm-hmm. and they came back and I said, is he getting up? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah. I tapped him on the leg. He was making a noise. And that's not the kind of answer you want to hear. Yeah. But I kind of just brushed it. Oh, like, okay. He's, maybe he's getting, slowly getting up. He's just sleepy because he didn't stand watch earlier. Plus we were in Hong Kong. So we probably partied the night before. And so now you're, t- you know, mm-hmm. you're tired, you're recovering. Because you can get off the ship. Yeah, we go off the ship. So okay. one duty section stays on the ship and the other the other duty, two duty sections go out and party okay. and then there's a rotation. And so some people end up getting three or four days and some people only get three and some people only get two, just depending on how mm-hmm. the duty station uh, rotates. And so then at, at nine forty five, I still didn't see Chris and I was kind of, my spidey sense was kind of tingling a little bit, but I was also emotionally distraught from my brother's news. So mm-hmm. I wasn't, I wasn't like listening to my intuition mm-hmm. closely enough. And then right at like 9.55, they called on again, like, hey, where's Chris? Because I should have been here by now. And I popped up and I mm-hmm. ran down and opened up the hatch one deck below where he was sleeping and the light was off and his curtain was still closed. Mm-hmm. And I saw his leg hanging out. And I just grabbed his leg and nothing. And then I pulled the curtain back, leaned back to like turn the light on. Mm-hmm. And I could just see his face was blue. No way. And I was like, Chris. And I like grabbed him, grabbed it, cradled his head, like pulled him. He And now he, Chris was a big dude. He was maybe like six, he was like six feet, maybe six one, two fifteen, two twenty. 220. So a stocky, thick guy, sweetest guy, like the most incredible Dude, he was he was the the ship's junior supply officer. Mm-hmm. So basically, everybody loved him because he was responsible for putting sodas in the vending machine oh. <laughs> and all the snacks yeah. and stuff, and just being in charge of that from an accounting standpoint as an officer. But he was just always doing stuff for people and saying yes and yes and just being. And it was crazy because two weeks prior, we were on the ship and we were talking about having life insurance, right? Oh, uh-huh. and we were both single guys. But I was like, I have life insurance because if something happened to me, I would want my mother to be better off for my mm-hmm. sacrifice. And he was like, Yeah, I just invest my money, and I've only got siblings that I would even want to leave something for, and they can get their own insurance. He just kind of had that viewpoint about it. And then two weeks later. 
he passes away at 26 years old. Wow, he's um, so young. So what happened? Did he have a pre, yeah, you know, so um, we existing nev- condition? We never found out the cause of death. Because no way. We were anchored off the coast of Hong Kong. So the Hong Kong hospital took his body. Uh-huh. The next day I went to ID his body. That's when I broke down and started crying. Yeah. And then basically they held his body for like three months without turning it over to the United States. It was like a whole political, it was a it was a crazy catastrophe. And so we couldn't do our own autopsy to determine what was the cause of death. Mm-hmm. And I have my suspicions. I, f- I feel like he was healthy. He was strong. He was, mm-hmm. he was an in-shape guy. So I, he, I feel like he could probably possibly have been poisoned. To, oh no way! Yeah, that's what I think because it it wasn't he didn't he 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 didn't have like sleep apnea or he didn't have like a snoring problem. He, there was nothing there was nothing that would lead us to think that he could suffocate in his sleep. Mm-hmm. But blue in the face could mean it could mean his heart just stopped. It could mean he stopped breathing or I don't know. But I have my suspicions. But yeah. I think that the fact that how they held his body for so long mm-hmm. it was so that we wouldn't be able to detect the true cause of death. Wow. Yeah. So you think somebody like in I don't know the Chinese like, I, I, government I, I, I don't know <laughs> from who who or where or why or how, but I think it, I suspect foul play of some sort. Because wow. he I mean, think about it. He's he's healthy. He st- he's he stands watch that day. He's, mm-hmm. he's up all day and then mm-hmm. to then go to bed and then like not wake up like yeah. at 26. Well, it's also weird that whoever else went to go check on him first and just like, and he had a reaction to it. So it's like, well, was he okay then? And just, like, oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So that was the last time that you? That was the last memorable. I feel like I cried once when I lived, since I've lived in LA in seven years. When I, I just had this deep thought about race relations and fighting for freedom, fighting for justice, like all of that stuff. And this was years ago. This was maybe like maybe like 2017, 2016, mm-hmm. 2017. I was doing some stuff um, in marketing and in, in insurance. And I won an award for the African-American Economic Empowerment Program where we we helped insure over a quarter of a million people with at least a quarter of a million dollars, which which equates to $50 billion wow. in insurance mm-hmm. in, a, in a six-year period. But I had this thought of like, the truth is out there. It's not that hard to find. But if you start broadcasting it too much, mm. your life becomes at risk. Mm-hmm. They, or they'll look, they'll look to cancel you, or they'll look mm-hmm. to figure out how to take something from you. And I had this thought that I that made me tear up. That I was kind of like, I'm willing to die for the things that I believe in. And I was like, if this cost me my life, then so be it. And that was kind of the thought that I had because when I look back at the history, I look at the assassination of Martin Luther King. It's like, well, what was he doing that made them want to take his life? Mm-hmm. Well, he was talking about the economics, the economics of what's owed, what's due. But also on my side, I was looking at the economics of how to beat the system, meaning there's things that the rich people know that are things that everybody has access to, but they know how to use them, those different tools and those devices, financial instruments. Mm-hmm. And in trying to do it as a black man, it's hard for one, because it's not like your your warm network has a ton of wealth to begin with. A lot of black people, most, I think it's like 
85% of all black people that have a million dollars, it's not liquid. It's in their home. Mm-hmm. So it's just based on their real estate assets. So it's not liquid, it's not capital that they can get to and move mm-hmm. and, right? But we're talking about all black wealth collectively in the United States is less than $400 billion. And we're talking about white wealth collectively is like $20 trillion. Wow. That's the difference in, no in the wealth gap. Yeah, It's funny that you're bringing this up because when I was at girls night and we were watching the bachelor we were talking about that how part of the i don't even want to say it's the problem because i mean i mean i guess it could be part of the problem but at least my friend's circle that was in the room a lot of us didn't deal with adversity in that regard right Mm -hmm. so if we wanted to go to college either our parents had saved for us or we were able to easily as long as we had the grades and we had the academics or the volunteerism or whatever we were able to get where we wanted to go. But Kachita's fiance was telling a story about how he got into college and his roommate was black and he he grew up in Wisconsin and it was a very small, obviously not mm-hmm. diverse town. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about hearing his roommate's story of how all the different hoops and things he had to do to get into you know, college. And he was reflecting on himself thinking, my God, like, I basically just like showed up and was like, I want to go here and and I got in. And that was several years ago because I think he's like in the same age range as you. Mm -hmm. But it brought up this greater discussion around race and around just like your starting off point, right? And one of the topics that has been huge in the last whatever year, year and a half is like white privilege. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. And I don't even know if... I completely understand. It requires, I think, a lot of self-reflection and a lot of just understanding that neighborhoods, diversity, you're starting off point, right? So in your mind, like, what does that mean? And like, break it down for me. So obviously this is this is uh, complex and there's a lot to, to, to unpack here. But I grew up in New York City. I went to college in the South. Mm-hmm. And I was a naval officer. So, and and then I've done well in business. So I've I've had a lot of exposure to both sides of the fence because I am I'm one of those black people that white people feel safe around, right? They feel like, oh, this guy is articulate. Hey, Jamar, you're, you're an articulate guy. And so, and then I'm educated. I have a pedigree, right? But I'm from the hood, and I'm from an era where the war on drugs wreaked havoc on my family. Because the war on drugs was actually a Trojan horse that allowed drugs into the country. When you look at what happened with with cocaine coming from Colombia, right, coming from Central America on order of the CIA, because they literally— I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> but there's so much research you got to do. Right? There's documentaries, books about this. This reporter risked his life to show that basically the CIA wanted money— to conduct a coup in Central America. And basically, at the time, the president didn't want to authorize them the money. So they said, okay, well, we'll just take these drugs that we know have an amazing street value. We'll sell them in the States, and then we'll have the money to conduct our coup in Central and South America. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. And so mm-hmm. that's what flooded the streets. Mm-hmm. This is stuff that's, uh, you can look at documentaries like Freeway, Freeway Crack in the System about the real Freeway Rick Ross, who's from L.A., who used to play tennis, 
and, and could have been an all-American all collegiate player, but because he couldn't read, educationally-wise, he couldn't pass the test. He couldn't get into college. So you have this kid who would, would have just been a, a, a kid on the come-up, going through school because of his athletic abilities. Instead, he gets an opportunity to sell drugs and has the, the plug to basically the largest drug smuggling operation on planet Earth at the time. And basically... At one point in time, he was doing 50 to $100 million a month in sales of wow. narcotics. And so he was chosen. He was given that, mm-hmm. right, because mm-hmm. of the, the CIA, mm-hmm. right? So the war on drugs wreaked havoc on my family, and some of my people didn't survive. And my mother was on drugs for eight years of my young life. Mm-hmm. So— you have those hurdles. Now, I lived with my grandmother until I was 12. And so I, my grandmother lived in the Bronx. We lived in a basically segregated neighborhood away from the Italians and the Irish. But we went to school together. We all shared the same public school. So the level of education was pretty good. So by the time I got to the city, I'm going to the school with now with inner city kids, black and brown kids, some a few Asian kids. But basically, the education's crap. I mean, I'm so far ahead that... I basically can honestly tell you that I don't recall learning anything in school new from like 12 to like 16. Did you get your good grades? So up up until I moved with my mother, my grades were great. I was a student. But then when I moved to my mother in the city, now it's the gangs, it's the violence, it's the having to fight every day to survive. I basically got left back twice. I oh, bas- wow. I basically stopped. I started just skipping class because I didn't want to get into the into fights and I didn't want to mm-hmm. be a part of anybody's gang. How would those type of exchanges happen? It would just be like you're you're walking to school or something no, and like you're it, in the it wrong. Most, it would mostly be at like lunch at school or like right after school or like people would be in the hallway trying to snap on you. And I've always had a, a sharp tongue, so I would I would make lesser intelligent people feel hurt. And mm-hmm. then they would want to fight. But mm. it was never a fair fight. It was always them with their friend and another friend. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it was like, it was like that constantly. Mm-hmm. So you just learn to just kind of kind of be a ghost in the machine and just like Bob and we try to figure out how to just slide out of this class, slide out of that class so you don't have to f- face all these altercations. Plus, I just like to be do my own thing and travel. And I remember you remember that that show Big with uh, – with uh, Tom Hanks, Hanks and, yeah. and he was at F.A.O. Swartz doing yeah, the piano. Yeah. I used to do that. I used to cut class and, and do that piano. Oh, really? And then at one point, it was too many too many people doing it. And it was like, wait a minute, there's too many black kids here in this store, which is way downtown where, where black people don't live. Mm-hmm. So they knew we were truants. And so the cops, the, the truant officers would be chasing us down the street trying to catch us and stuff. So I, I got left back twice, but then I got skipped once. Passed the SATs without studying, became valedictorian. And then basically I had to be a super Negro to get into college because Mm -hmm. the school system that I was in wasn't going to set me up to succeed in that. People were lucky to go to city college, community college, but I got a full ride scholarship academically. But I I, I definitely give props to my high school, the, the one that I ended up in, because the teachers really cared there. They really put extra time and effort and energy, but also extra exposure because we had internships and they had things that they exposed us to that really made all the difference. And a lot of kids are in situations where even if the education is somewhat adequate, they're still not getting the exposure, which is the network. Mm. And there's a saying, your network is your net worth. 
Mm-hmm. And if you're surrounded by people who don't have anything and don't have access to other networks, then you're limited. You're boxed in just by that alone, mm-hmm. which is not anybody's real fault, but it's 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 something to stack on on top of the wealth the wealth gap and why it exists, the war on drugs, how that affected communities, then the poor education system, and blah, 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 blah. It just mm-hmm. it starts to become a lot of factors that make it difficult for most. Right. So how did you keep your mindset the way you did? Because I'm sure you're then observing other kids with, if you want to call it privilege or whatever, just like their foundational roots, how they grew up, the opportunities they had in front of them that were just kind of like naturally there and and attainable for them without a lot of effort. So how did you prevent yourself from kind of comparing yourself to their story and their journey and accepting that you might have to cross a few more hurdles, but you were willing to do that. You were willing to put forth, you know, the work and the effort to kind of get to where you wanted to go. I think it comes from just being grounded in the facts of life, right? My mother, she recovered from a drug use And now she's 28 years clean at this point. But as we were going through her recovery and going through the counseling and the group training and all of the the stuff along with that. So you participated in that? Yeah, yeah. My mother was smart enough to know that she had to help heal everybody in the house and Mm. not just herself. Mm -hmm. And as I was going through that, you just realized that life isn't fair, right? So you have two options. You You can bitch and moan. You can cry and complain. Or you can say, life ain't fair, but I'm still going to try to find a way to kick life in the mouth. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not going to let life win over me. I can control my outcome. I can control my fate. I can control what happens to me. It's just a belief. Mm-hmm. And you can call that faith. You can call that, because I'm not a religious person, but I've always had belief mm-hmm. in myself. And I, only, I can only give credit to my mother for that because she helped me to feel confident as a human being. She helped me to feel like I could learn. I was smart. I was, I was witty. She, she instilled in me a lot of the things. About five to seven years old, a lot of people believe that we kind of are off on who we're going to be. But of course, we can adapt and change a little bit. It's those early years that count the most in a kid's life. And at five to seven, I was... I feel like I was just as smart. I was fixing stuff in the, around the house. I was very articulate because I love to read books and learn new words. And that's who I was. And so I've always had that in me. And there's a lot of people who don't have the innate desire to just learn every single day. Mm-hmm. There's some people who are just fine knowing what they know mm-hmm. and doing what they do and going about life in very, very simple terms. But for me, I'm like, no, there's, there's more here. There's more here to explore. Mm-hmm. There's more to uncover. But having that mentality means that you don't focus on the fact that my brother's 6'4", and I'm only 6'1". If I would have been 6'4", I feel like I would have been in the NBA. Like, that's just my mindset. Because we both started training basketball at the same time, but he's two years younger than me. So that means that he had two more years of practice Mm -hmm. than I did. And that extra practice paid off because he got a D1 scholarship to play basketball. Mm -hmm. But in my mind... I'm going to the NBA because of the mindset, mm-hmm. right? Like he's 6'4", but the last game we played together, I beat him because I outsmarted him. I used more wit, mm-hmm. more, more, more cunning, <laughs> right? But more cunning. Oh my God, you're a competitive spirit. <laughs> yeah, no, but, but, but it's about mindset. When I feel like that's the only thing that separates and it sounds cliche and it sounds insensitive and it's like, no, but 
I have an amazing ability to compartmentalize. I have an amazing ability to get tunnel vision and not worry about what everyone else is doing beside me. Mm-hmm. Everybody, everybody has privilege to some degree or another in in certain situations, based on your race, your religion, how you look, your charm, your intellect, your knowledge on the subject. There's so many different things that go into it. I think it's easy to just look at people's color and, and assume because I know plenty of poor white people. I, I had one that grew up with us and his his family was worse off than all of our families because of drugs and, and mm-hmm. mental health or whatever. Right. And he wasn't all there, but I didn't look at him and think he was any better than me because of how he looked. Right. I looked at his actual situation. It was like, man, he's worse off than us. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think that. And, and listen, there are super ultra wealthy black people, but it's very few and far in between right. because most of it has been. I don't want to say most. I think there's also choices. I'm a big proponent. Like I'm definitely I lean more conservative. I lean more libertarian than anything else because I'm like, no. No matter what happens, you still have a role to play and you can either stay in your lane or you can go make some new lanes. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer and you can find opportunity. Yeah. It, <laughs> so one thing that I'm thinking of is when kind of everything came to a head after George Floyd, I had a conversation with a black man about kind of this type of subject matter. And I feel like I've been pretty sensitive to it since I've dated outside my race for a long time. And I actually have a blog post from 2018. I I had met a man on Tinder and our relationship was really like a lot of just conversations. And I actually really enjoyed it because one of the things I really love to do is learn about other people and other people's cultures and like their upbringing and hear their story. And everybody just has a unique story. And I think that's so special. And, And unfortunately, like not a lot of people feel comfortable sharing. Like, I think that's one of the beautiful things about you is you accept your story and you talk about your mother and how proud you are of her and where she was and, and where she is now. And, and I think that's great. Like you, you own it, you accept it and you use it as a teachable moment. And, and it's just, it's part of who you are. And so I spent a lot of time just in the backyard having cocktails, just learning, but fast forward when I had this conversation with this other black man who's just just a friend, I made the mistake of kind of referencing some prolific black people who have earned beyond the the normal potential of, I I mean, a small fraction of the population like Oprah, right? So, and he fired back at me real quick and was like, oh, no, 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 you cannot use that as an example. Like she is of the, I don't even know what percentage you're better at statistics than I am, but. She's she's less than a half of percent of all human beings on earth. I mean, that earn that kind of money. Right. She's, she's, She's an anomaly. Yeah. But I mean, but she, she did it and she came up the ranks like, and I don't know her backstory, so I'm speaking just out my ass, but just watching her journey from what I saw, I was like, whoa, you know, she really created her empire. But I think that was the first time I realized, okay, Aaron, like, even though you're an ally, even though like, I don't feel I have a racist bone in my body. I made a comment that came from an ignorant place that triggered a reaction, you know what I Absolutely, mean? Absolutely, yeah. And black people have to deal with those all the time. But it's a matter of, do you have to deal with it or do you just let it roll off your back? Like, my mother used to say something that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words may never harm you. 
unless you allow them to. Mm-hmm. And so we get to really control how something that's said by someone, whether they meant to hurt us or not, we always control what is the effect on us. How did, how did I take that? Mm-hmm. Right. So bringing up someone like Oprah, for example, in a conversation, I mean, I know all of the actual facts and stats. And so for me, it's like, I see that she's very successful, but she's also, that's not a normal route you can route for anybody. Let's just talk about the average people. Mm-hmm. Let's just look at the bell curve and say, okay, the 85% of the people in the middle, how is life for them? And life isn't easy for anybody. But in this particular country, because of things in the past, what, I, what I'll say is that black people have a much more narrow margin of error mm. that they can have in their life. Mm-hmm. When it comes to everything from blacks and whites use all use marijuana at the same rate, mm-hmm. but blacks are more likely to get fined, incarcerated, imprisoned for their use. We're not talking about becoming kingpins out here. We're talking about people just using it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, why is that? Now, there's other things to that. Like there's stats like, well, a lot of times blacks that also use marijuana, they also have other charges because they did other things, physical violence and things like that in the past. Mm-hmm. And so what people are ignoring is that that past was already there. They already had a strike or two. Mm-hmm. That was violent. Mm-hmm. And then you add marijuana on that. And so now it's a compounding effect. So I'm not ignorant to that fact either. I think we got to look at everything in the full scope. Mm-hmm. So as someone who feels like I can overcome any obstacle, I still know that it's a little tougher, but I can. I have two choices. I can either accept it. And that's the biggest thing. If you have acceptance, now you can start to work for a solution or a way around it. If you have no acceptance, if you're just like, no, it shouldn't be this way. We got to figure out a way to trying to change this. This country is like a corporation and it's like a big Titanic ship, uh-huh. right? It's big. It's moving. People were telling them, yo, there's ice out there, man. If you don't, right? I'm a big believer. If you can fix the black man's problem, you can fix America because it affects everybody. Mm-hmm. However, the black man the brown man, who whatever man that doesn't feel like he's in the pole position, mm-hmm. this is a competition. You've got to figure out the rules of the game, the rules of engagement, and execute them at, a, at the highest level. Otherwise, you have no chance of winning. And I don't want to see that anybody's table. I want to go build a table. Mm-hmm. I but go- how do you get the people who don't have that same mindset, that aren't that confident, that don't have the skill set, the the networking ability, the voice that you do? How do you help them see that light? So, first of all, I'm, I have a, I did a TED talk a few years ago, unreleased. Actually, I have the footage. I have this team that wants to put it together for me, but it's called Mentors or Lighthouses. Mm-hmm. The way I do it is just by living my life, by just being an example, by just being present, by making myself available, by giving people a chance to see what I'm doing. The people that want to do that thing, they'll follow. The people that don't, they won't. You can't change people. You can ex- just expose people to what's available. They still have to take the action, mm-hmm. right? But if, if they don't take the action, like where I feel like where we are right now is in this state of limbo where it's uncomfortable because 
I feel like as a white person, I'm I'm trying to do my best to be an ally, to help out, to advocate, to share my voice, to not necessarily correct behavior amongst anybody I associate with, but maybe like point it out if it's like, whoa, mm-hmm. that's a little insensitive or whatever, like do my part from a grassroots standpoint, right? Because I don't know what else to do, but I feel like it's not enough and it's not moving the needle what you have, what you don't have right now, what you need to get more of is acceptance mm. that it doesn't matter what you do. It's never going to be enough because it's not solely up to you to fix and solve anybody else's problems. What's going to be enough is for you to have acceptance that you just do the best you can in every moment. And you live your life as a shining example of how to be human, how to be kind, how to be whatever things you stand for. Mm-hmm. That is your only responsibility. And as long as you stay true to that, you're doing enough because you're not, you're, your job isn't to try to change the hearts and minds of the world. Your job is just to be the best example of how to live life mm. so that other people around you can see that, admire that, right? Be impeccable with your words, right? Never speak ill of others. Mm-hmm. Um, mean what you say. Do what you say. Be, be reliable. And then try to be, when you, when you are being that example of how to live life, what you're going to find is that you're going to gravitate towards people who are more like you. Mm. And the people that aren't, they're going to be repelled in their mind. What's wrong with you? Because they, how they see the world is right for them. And you got to just realize that you have to break free of that energy. You're not there to change people. You're there to live your life, lead with light, lead with love. And mm-hmm. those who want a piece of that will keep coming back for more. Mm-hmm. And you'll create a bond and you'll create a, a, give, a give and take. But also people that aren't motivated or inspired to do something. Like, you got to understand, like, you can't want more for others than they want for themselves. That's hard for me. (laughs) You know what I mean? Especially when you can see somebody's potential and you see something within them that they may not even see themselves when they look in the mirror. But it's it's hard to see somebody not live out or live up to their their highest potential. Believe, Believe me, I know. I have a brother who is just can't stay out of trouble mm-hmm. and he's talented as a musician and I, and I just want him to, to to succeed with all of my heart the same brother that made me cry when I was 26 now when something happens I don't I don't cry anymore because mm-hmm. it's like well he hasn't learned his lesson yet he's mm-hmm. still here to get his lesson and I feel like there's a lot of people who just they 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 you need lessons you need training you need to go through the repetition you need to get over the fear of failure you need to get over the fear of rejection mm-hmm a lot of people have trauma over those things, and so they don't advocate for themselves. They don't speak up for themselves, or they do it in a way that makes them seem more violent and agitated than they actually are. Those are the things that you have to get people to understand. Listen, that's why I'm a big believer that like most of us probably have to go through this human existence a couple times to really get it. But once you get it, life becomes just like, like Neo in the Matrix. It's like... <laughs> Even if you don't have the wealth you want to have, you can see that it's attainable. You can see a direct, you can, in your mind's eye, you can see how to get there. And every day you just chop a little bit at that tree to get there. Mm-hmm. Every day you just take, take a couple more steps forward. And then you start look, it starts looking to others like you're gliding through life. But what they didn't realize is you had to build up that momentum. They say it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. Joe Rogan was doing that podcast for years, but 
the momentum started building and more and more listeners and more and more listeners. And then they were getting so much value out of it that it was like must-see TV. It was like, man, we don't even know what day he's going to be going live. When he goes live, we're tuning in on YouTube in real time with for three hours listening to Joe Rogan. Yeah. Now he's on Spotify and it's like, fuck, I'm, I'm not going over there to listen to all of that. I'll just wait for the clips on YouTube. Yeah, and you'll watch them at 2 in the morning, 4.15 a.m. Yes. You'll freaking laugh out loud. <laughs> Trust me, I know. Yeah. I know. Well, that was Mark Marin and Eddie Murphy, which was a great, 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 great podcast. I wasn't sure if I was dreaming or freaking sitting in front row at a comedy show. <laughs> Only I couldn't hear the jokes. I could just hear the laugh track. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So... So one thing that I noticed, and I do want to equate it back to, to The Bachelor. So so this year, The Bachelor was, he's he's biracial. He His mother is white, his father is black, and he ends up picking a white woman who has had some things come to the surface about perhaps exercising in some behavior and doing some things that could be deemed, you know, as racist. What I appreciate about you and our short time that we've had together is I feel like even if I were to have displayed some behavior or said something that might upset you or you might think is is not in line with how I should be, you would use it as a moment to kind of have a conversation with me, educate me, kind of help me through that. What I thought was interesting is that's not how The Bachelor handled the situation. He basically made it known she needs to go do the work on her own. We're very separate in this process. But I kind of felt like watching that and like knowing our situation and kind of putting myself in her shoes, there's nothing she can really do that's going to ever be enough. Like you just told me that basically in our conversation too, it's mm -hmm. more about acceptance and and kind of like the human element of always trying to be a better version of yourself and doing the right thing as a human being and just loving one another. So knowing that you're choosing a path to be in a relationship with me, knowing that one day we're going to have our own biracial kids and stuff, what makes you want to take that path and understanding his situation as well? Like what makes you think that why he would want her to do that on her own versus being like, let's, let's partner together on this. Let's use this as a teachable moment to not, ju not just for each other, not to just be better together in our partnership, but to also show the world that people are deserving of forgiveness and a second chance. And just because you behaved one way in 2018 doesn't mean you can't evolve and grow as a person. Because if that's the type of society that we're raising and we're kind of spotlighting right now, that's a really sad existence. I mean, it means that nobody can ever make a mistake and not come back from it. Yeah. Well, I think the clear and obvious reason that he wanted her to go off and do it separately is because as a man, he's not really a leader. He's somebody who signed up to be on a reality show, mm -hmm. right? So you got to just think about what goes into that mentality. Like, I understand you want love, but to, to have your life under a microscope, to have some of it be fake, and to, like to even subject yourself to that means that he's not really a leader because a leader isn't going to go do something like that. Mm -hmm. There's other things to be doing. So that's the first thing. So he's not a leader. Second of all, for him, it might not even be something that He's even it, like because somebody goes blackface for me like that doesn't bother me. It's like, OK, you try to be funny. You failed epically, but it doesn't even that's not something that is even going to bother me. So 
I'm born in 79, but like in the 70s and the 80s, like racial jokes were a constant thing in like New York City. You just develop a tougher skin to it. It's kind of like, again, sticks and stones will break your bones. Words never harm you unless you allow them to. Mm-hmm. So if someone does a racist thing that isn't violent, eh, now thanks for revealing yourself, sir mm-hmm. or madam, right? <laughs> but that's that's about all I need. And now I know where to where to go. Now, here's the thing. Martin Luther King basically helped the Civil Rights Act, right? Mm-hmm. The civil rights legislation. He had to deal with a racist. Right. Lyndon B. Johnson was a racist Mm -hmm. and used the N word. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a racist still did the right thing as a human being to help move the country together towards healing versus just being opposed to each other. Black people in this country have fought in every single major war that America has ever fought and won. We are American. And so knowing who you are gives you strength, gives you power and your birthright. To not know your history is to be like, you know what? And to not be a leader means you're not going to take the opportunity to educate someone. If we let people around us be live in ignorance, ignorance is only bliss until it's not anymore. Mm. Right? So I think when we look at a relationship, I've, I've dated women of all types. And yes, it would be, it's simpler to date a black woman because I'm black. And so we've got the shorthand of knowing what we've been through. But it's also not so simple for me because I'm not just a black liberal person. I'm a black libertarian person. I think a little bit more. I don't just listen to what the people who are, that they prop up to be, these are our leaders. I don't just listen to them and go, oh, our leaders say something. For me, you earn your freedom every day with the choices you make and with the knowledge you empower yourself with, with the education around what's happening, what's in your food, what's in your water, what buildings are being put up. I say, it's like a joke, but like the reason why I feel, I feel more white than a lot of white people because I'm somebody who would write a note or write a letter to the city councilman or write mm-hmm. a note to complain about something because I understand the power and putting pen to paper and, and documenting mm-hmm. and leaving a trail. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's about being, it's about your civic duties. Mm. And I think that that's what it means to be an American. And those who get that, that few and far percentage that get that, they tend to have more success in life. They tend to at least be known but they tend to acquire wealth. They tend to acquire resources. And see, wealth is not just money. There's a richness of once you have acceptance and once you really can see the abundance that really surrounds you, you then move in a way that's very regal, that's very like proud of yourself. Mm -hmm. And you move in a way that, like I said, you look for solutions, you look for connections, and you slowly amass resources, both in people, obviously money, physical things. But now we've got intellectual property and then even more so now Again, your network is your net worth. People who know you that you can pick up the fall. Like it's funny, we're on this podcast and I just got a text from the the woman who runs the chocolate Sundays at, oh, yeah, La- yeah. at the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. And I was telling her a little bit about Club Nirvana and she just texted me, hey, I actually want to get some CBD cream for my dad and his knee. Any suggestions? So my connections, which hopefully this leads to a big partnership 
But even if it doesn't, look, I just generated revenue into my business Mm -hmm. because of making a connection and keeping the connection alive and and building it. And revenue is about to exchange hands. Mm. I think ultimately to circle back to the question about The Bachelor, like a man that's a leader is going to do the hard work. He's not going to just tell someone to go figure it out. Mm-hmm. Train them so that they understand better, and then you can be on the same page. Because mm-hmm. if you send someone off to go, what what are they learning? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. And I mean, that was just it, it was just so mind boggling to me too. Because I'm thinking like his mother is white, and so she had to deal with some of those same things. And so, and he's very close with his mother. And I'm just thinking that's like him telling his mom something very similar. But I'm just very grateful that. I don't think you would ever handle the situation like that. And I think you would always give me the benefit of the doubt. And if there is a teachable moment or is there something that you think that I could do better and you would bring it to my attention and help me through it. Yeah, like we did today. And so I'm looking forward to having that premarital exercises. <laughs> oh, I didn't mean that kind, but conducted. Oh, boy. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> deuces. <laughs> See you at the next one, folks. I'm sure that Matt feels all kinds of pressure being in the public eye, representing black men, black culture. I'm sure that played a large role in his decision making of how to proceed. My hope, though, is that he reevaluates his involvement. I can't imagine going through all of that, falling in love, and not having my person stick by my side and not have my person support and and help me be better. Um, Watching that was just so hard for me. Rachel, she can still do the work on her own, but he, he can support her. He could guide her in the process. And together, they could set an example for how any friendship or relationship that exists in today's environment where someone made a bad choice, a bad decision, where they did something insensitive. And it can just show that together we can help each other do better, move forward, I don't know. That That's my two cents on the subject matter. But there's no doubt in my mind that she is in love with him. No doubt. I mean, you can you can see it in her body language. For, given the circumstances, I thought she did well. I mean, she is owning what she did. She doesn't have a choice, right? I just really hope that there's a breakthrough and this has a happy ending. And, you know, and she does do the work, but he comes and supports her and they come back together, you know, stronger and better for it. So thanks for tuning into your Such a Catch. I know these topics are intense and difficult sometimes to discuss, but I appreciate your commitment to focusing on growth and being part of a community that positively contributes to society. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button and to follow my journey on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Will you guys accept this rose? (laughs) If the answer is yes, I will see you next week.